What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 44 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Our main story? The dire shortage of life-saving ventilators that plagued the U.S. in March has been eased in many places. But even though these machines are a treatment of last resort for the sickest patients, most people on ventilators never recover. When they do, their bodies can be changed forever. But first, here's what happened today. The death toll from the new coronavirus reached 50,000 in the U.S. The country is the epicenter of the global outbreak, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. New York City has suffered the most, with more than 16,000 deaths. In the U.S., some 870,000 people have been infected. Still, some states have begun planning rollbacks on social distancing restrictions. That creates a challenge of how to restart the economy without sparking a second wave of infections. Some European countries, including Germany and Austria, are already taking cautious steps toward reopening. The U.S. response to the pandemic remains disjointed. And it's not clear how much policy is driven by science. In a Thursday evening briefing, President Donald Trump suggested that doctors experiment with injecting disinfectant to treat coronavirus. His comments came after a Homeland Security undersecretary told reporters bleach and alcohol killed the virus on surfaces. Disinfectant brands and medical experts alike have made statements to the public stating in no uncertain terms that bleach is a toxic chemical and should never be ingested or inhaled in any way. Separately today, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warned patients against taking two malaria medications that have been talked up by President Donald Trump for COVID-19, unless carefully monitored in a hospital or as part of a clinical trial. The FDA said it was issuing the warning for the drugs hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine after reports that patients taking them had experienced serious heart issues. These heart rhythm problems emerged especially when patients were also taking the antibiotic azithromycin. Finally, Trump signed the $484 billion coronavirus rescue bill into law today. Congress has pumped out almost $3 trillion to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, mostly on a bipartisan basis. But House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are poised to spar over the next round of government aid. Pelosi wants to expand the social safety net 
as well as provide $500 billion to struggling state and local governments. McConnell hasn't yet committed to another big aid package and has indicated he will resist issuing aid to states. The next phase of economic stimulus likely will be the last before the 2020 elections. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. And now, our main story. We've heard a lot about ventilators over the past few weeks. These once obscure pieces of medical equipment have become ubiquitous in everyday conversation. Because the machines are so often used to treat very ill COVID-19 patients, they are prized in hospitals across the U.S. and beyond. But they are also feared for the damage they can inflict and for the slim odds of survival they offer. Ventilators are the last line of defense. They can completely take over for the lungs in the sickest patients, those with no other options, and give their bodies time to fight off an infection. There's a reason it's called life support. But the machines are invasive. Doctors have to insert a tube all the way down into the trachea to just above the lungs. Studies show most patients with COVID-19 on ventilators don't survive. And that invasive process isn't without consequences. Michelle Fay Cortez reports that we don't know exactly what ventilators do to our bodies. It's not yet clear what the long-term consequences are for those lucky enough to recover after having been on one. Olivia Carville also reported this segment. That round of applause you hear is a group of healthcare workers at Somerset Hospital in New Jersey. They're lining the halls, clapping and playing joyful music for Carlos Aguilar, a 64-year-old father from New Jersey who was just extubated after spending three days hooked up to a ventilator. In intensive care units around the country, there are similar celebrations whenever a COVID-19 patient gets off a ventilator. That's because it's rare. About 70% of patients who are put on a ventilator don't survive. Luckily, Carlos was eventually able to breathe on his own again. What makes his story even more remarkable is the fact that he wasn't alone. His wife of 35 years, Diana, was treated for COVID-19 in the same hospital. She was intubated for 10 days. When she was taken off the ventilator, she got a cheering section and a song of her own. Diana remembers the fear she felt when she couldn't breathe before the ventilator was hooked up to breathe for her. She says she knew she was going to die. I give up. I give up. I call my husband. I say bye to him. I can't more. I can't breathe. The doctor came and said, you need that ventilator. He said, oh my God. And um, they explained me what's going to happen to me. A lot of 
step but I, I don't understand but uh, at the same time I wanted to put it right away because I cannot drink. Diana, who worked as a janitor and has underlying health problems, including two bouts of colon cancer, had spent a week suffering from dizziness, body aches, shortness of breath, and a fever as high as 105.3 before being admitted to Somerset with COVID-19. The infection warped her reality. She thought the nurses and doctors wearing masks and gowns were angels or something else. We spoke to Diana a week after she was discharged. Her son, Carlos Aguilar Jr., helped with the translation. It's so scary. It, it's like, um, like un espacio. Space. Space. Because the fever, the high fever, mm-hmm. you know, it makes you see things. Yeah, I say, true. okay, oh my God, um, extraterrestre. <laughs> Aliens. Aliens. Doctors explained that she was about to be intubated and connected to a ventilator. But Diana was saying her goodbyes. I was so scared. And everybody trying to explain me what's going to happen to me. And they asked me, do you understand? I said, yes, I understand. Only that I want is the helmet to breathe. You just wanted to hurry up. Yep. Diana was struggling to breathe because the infection and inflammation was taking hold in her lungs. Together, they caused a buildup of fluid and thick mucus in the tiny air sacs that are critical for the lungs to work. After you take a breath, delicate sacs known as alveoli take oxygen from the air and transfer it into your blood. From there, it fuels every part of your body. For Diana, the system wasn't functioning. Not enough oxygen was getting into her blood. After she was sedated, doctors slid a tube down her throat that was connected to the ventilator. They adjusted the machine to deliver higher levels of oxygen than what's normally found in ambient air and raised the pressure to get it through her clogged lungs. Where you have a problem with ventilators, we're working very hard trying to find nobody in their wildest dreams would have ever thought that we need tens of thousands of ventilators. This is something that's very unique to this, to what happened. There was a near panic early in the pandemic about the number of ventilators available in the U.S. Hospitals have about 63,000 of them across the country. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said at one point that New York alone might need 40,000 of them. All the projections say you could have an apex needing 140,000 beds and about 40,000 ventilators. Those are numbers, Zach. Device makers ramped up production, and even car companies started making them. Hospitals were seeing unprecedented demand. Only the most severe patients, like Diana and Carlos, need intubation. Even with the help of a ventilator, many don't make it. For those who do survive extubation, that's not the end. Far from it. After being weaned off life support, both Diana and Carlos have a long road to recovery. Part of it stems from the ventilator itself. Many patients are given sedatives so they don't fight against the machine that's trying to breathe for them. But muscles that are used to working every day quickly start to atrophy. A condition known as post-ICU syndrome can develop in up to half of patients, a widespread weakness that never fully resolves. 
For some, it's as if they're paralyzed. For others, regular activities are exhausting. Dr. Michael Rodericks is the medical director of intensive care at Somerset. He says some patients never regain their full strength. Sometimes when you're on the ventilator for two weeks, you're, you're not able to go back to how you were prior to getting sick and you need to go to rehab for some period of time to be able to do your activities of, of daily living. And it's not just physical activity. Sometimes memory and thinking clearly are also a challenge. You may have some mild cognitive impairments after being on the ventilator. So, for instance, someone that worked as an accountant prior to being on the ventilator and being in the ICU, they may have a tough time going back to work. Someone, uh, an older person who was maybe independent and drove and took care of all their own activities, well, they may not be able to go back to that same lifestyle and they might need help. They might not be able to drive. They may not be able to shop and, and walk around the supermarket and carry out their own activities of daily living. Your overall condition may take some time to get back to its pre-COVID, uh, pre-ICU state, if, if it even gets back to that pre-ICU state. That's why it's more important than ever to celebrate the wins right now. Diana and Carlos Aguilar have been together for 35 years. They both got COVID-19. They were both on ventilators. And they both beat the odds. Here comes the sun, indeed. I feel like God give, me, give us another opportunity. I give thanks to God to, to live again. And I feel lucky. I feel lucky it is a miracle. I feel that, that I'm here and I can say my story. That was Michelle Faye Cortez. Olivia Carville also helped with reporting on this story. And that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from our bureaus around the world, please visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And as usual, a favor. If you appreciate the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is hosted by me, Laura Carlson. The show was produced by me, Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, and Magnus Henriksen. Today's main story was reported by Michelle Faye Cortez and Olivia Carville. Original music by Leo Citrin. Our editors are Francesca Levy and Rick Shine. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.